Well, good morning. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? There should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And find in your New Testament, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians here. I'm going to find it myself and we'll, we'll work our way through this little bitty passage here today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we are. We started this series a few weeks ago and we're continuing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 through 22. Let me tell you just a little bit about where we've been thus far. Paul has begun this letter talking very, very personally We've seen an inside picture to Paul's subjective Christian reality. We ended last week uh, really with two big ideas that we've covered so far in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. One is this uh, story that Paul has shared with us that he has experienced God as a God of comfort. That when afflictions and difficulty and hardship came as a result of Paul's calling and ministry focus from Jesus Christ, he knew God in a deeper way. He knew God in a very intimate way that this God was a God of comfort who would draw near to him when life got rough. And then last week we looked at another experience that we had or that Paul had where he discovered God to be a God of resurrections. That that truth of God being one who raises the dead penetrated into the deepest parts of Paul. It formed the inner convictions of who he is. Where he said, we went through such a severe test of affliction that made us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And we ended last week looking at Paul's invitation, where there was distance between Paul's experience and the Corinthian church's experience. But Paul said, as we suffer and we face affliction, our hope for you is unchanged and you must also help us with prayer. So that we together would give thanks to a God who shows up and raises the dead in my spiritual life. And that you, many, would give thanks. Remember that exercise we did where we all looked at the ceiling? That was the picture that Paul wanted us to have of the praying church as they labored in prayer for Paul. For God to do big and great things in his life and that they might, as a result of their prayers, see God answer prayer and then give God thanks for doing what only God can do. Well, what we're going to do today is step into one of the big problems that you have in 2 Corinthians. It's really going to be the theme that throughout this book is going to come to the forefront. A lot of the book of 2 Corinthians is hard to know what's happening in the church. You kind of have to intuit it from things that Paul says. He's not that explicit. But suffice it to say, when Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with these false... Uh, kind of apostolic competitors who show up in the church and seek to discourage and dissuade the Corinthian church from believing and following and trusting Paul. Paul has this kind of ministry, um, I don't know how to put it, other than what you see with Paul isn't often what he writes in his letters. And these apostolic competitors, these people who are trying to uh, critique Paul will say, well, he's really weak and timid in person, but his letters are very, very bold. He's duplicitous. He, he says one thing and then he does another. He talks about being uh, big and strong and powerful in the spirit of the Lord, but when we see him, he kind of stumbles over his speech. He's not that big of a guy. He's sort of frail and sickly. And what these false apostles will do is begin to sow questions in the mind 
of the church. So you can imagine how Paul is feeling in his heart as these false apostles that he'll confront several different times throughout this book begin to get a foothold in this church. Imagine, we got a lot of young folks in here. Imagine if you have kids, you'll get this. If you don't have kids, just imagine you've got two or three. Maybe you've even got six kids. Just imagine that for a second. You've got six children in this illustration. And imagine there's an individual that comes into the life of your kids. And this individual comes into the life of your kids and begins to talk to them about spiritual things. But they begin to move your children's affections toward themselves. They begin to say, I'm far more popular than your parents are. I'm far more influential than your parents are. I'm much more clever in my speech and my skill set is much more influential in our city than your parents are. In fact, your parents demonstrate a level of inconsistency in their Christian walk. There are certain things that they do that don't line up with what they say. And I'm not sure if they're all that great parents, honestly. Maybe they're not that good for you. And all of us as parents, as you live in that illustration for a minute, feel the temperature rising in your heart, don't you? You feel the, the weight of the fact that there is something profoundly wrong with this. This is an individual who does not wish my children good. This is an individual who seeks to sow division between my relationship with my kids. And there's no dad in this room who doesn't begin to dust off the 45 and put some bullets in it, right? (laughs) Who goes, we need to have an understanding. We need to have a conversation. And no parent in this room is going to have that conversation out of pure ego, are they? No parent is going to say, well, that person doesn't respect me the way I ought to be respected. I have a real issue with the fact that this person doesn't respect me. No, the parent in that moment will respond out of profound love for their kids. Amen? That there is a problem. If you're going after my babies, we're going to have to have a conversation. And it has nothing to do with my ego. It has nothing to do with my inconsistencies. It has to do with the heart of my kids. Now, That's where Paul is. Paul feels that on a spiritual level. And we get our first hint of this tension that lives in the Apostle Paul in these 10 verses. What is Paul going to do? Paul is distant from this church. The false apostles are in the church. Paul's far away. He doesn't know in this letter whether or not the Corinthian church will respond to his rebukes, will respond to his letters. In fact, there's evidence in 1 Corinthians that sometimes they don't understand what he writes to them. You'll even see that here in this passage. So how is Paul going to address these issues without giving the false apostles more ammo to say, ah, Paul, see, he's just, his, his ego is bruised. Ah, Paul just thinks too highly of himself. See, Paul says one thing, but he has another. He doesn't really care about you. So what is Paul going to do in this situation? So you have two sides of what's going on. You have what's going on in the church, and you have what's going on in Paul's heart. 
And you're going to watch Paul navigate this tension with what's happening in the church. And Paul is going to give us this beautiful example, one, of how we ought to minister to one another. Would you agree that it is a risky thing, uh, discipling, teaching, investing spiritually in somebody else? Do you know that? It is a risky thing because God does not give us the ministry, the gospel ministry. He doesn't put it in our hands as a church and just say, announce some things. Give some facts about God, and that's the ministry. No, it's, it's far more intimate than that. That our hearts get involved, don't they? That our hearts for our kids, when we pray for them, the people we have shared the gospel with, the people that you have prayed for right now, the people that you are hoping take steps of faith and repentance and grace-filled obedience in God's name, weigh on your heart, don't they? You feel that when you share the faith. You feel that with friends that you've ministered to, that you've talked to, that you've invested in, that you pray for. You know that your heart is bound up in their spiritual well-being. So what is Paul going to do? How do we examine our motives? How do we invest rightly in people. And the other side of it, now that's one side, that's the, the Paul side. The other side is the church. Who should the church listen to? How, th- how should the church grow and pay attention and be aware of things that are contra or against the gospel message, the, the, against the apostolic witness that has been handed down from Jesus Christ, the foundation cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets. What should the church, how should, I'm sorry, how should the church respond to those things? And that's what you have here in this passage. You with me so far? Let's pray and we'll ask, uh, we'll ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, for these few minutes as we look into your word, would you teach us? Would you guide us and encourage us and challenge us to be the kind of church that would cling to the apostolic witness. For those of us in this room who feel the weight of ministry to others, would you encourage us and embolden us because of this passage? Would you shape us and guide us as a church that we might be men and women of courage, men and women who take the risk to invest in the spiritual lives of others, that we would care and pray and teach and encourage and disciple with all of the strength and the power Uh, that you provide through your spirit. So Father, bless us in our ambition to do those things, to be a church that honors your name, to be a church that lifts up the name of Christ, to be a church that is built and founded upon the word and that we would be what Paul calls in 2 Timothy, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Father, we need you for these things. We don't claim any ability in ourselves May we be a church, as Paul said last week, that does not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, our transition, I keep picking up these sermons like right in the middle of a sentence. I apologize for that. If that bothers you, you're kind of type A, and you're like, can we start at a capital letter, please? And not like a, you know, uh, I'm not doing that this week either. We did that last week. We're going to do it again this week. But let me give you just 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11. Now, verse 11 was where we ended last week. If you'd look at that, 2 Corinthians 1, 11 says this, you also must help us by prayer. 
so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And we said last week that here was this invitation that Paul now begins to draw the Corinthian church close to him and invite their prayers, their investment, their desire for God to do great things in and through him and to participate in Paul's ministry through prayer. Now Paul, in verse 12, is going to explain that. So take a look at verse 12. For our boast is this. Now, the word boast is used more often in 2 Corinthians than any other of Paul's letters. It's an idea that to us as Americans or just English speakers, a lot of times we feel like boasting is definitely and only and always bad. It, it's something that uh, to us sort of reeks of arrogance, that we ought to be much more demure, much more humble, much more self-sacrificing than that, that we couldn't and shouldn't have any kind of boasting characterize our speech, characterize our attitudes. But the idea of boasting in the scriptures has to do with our confidence. It has to do with where we, where we set our foundation, the confidence out of which we're able to speak, to minister, to disciple, to encourage, to do any of those things. It's the ground out of which we do our ministry. Let me just give you a couple of New Testament passages that speak to this. And then I'll talk to you about what Paul talks about here, which is his boast in context of 2 Corinthians. Paul in Galatians 4 says, Let's each, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about boasting, he'll talk about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, boasting of the fact that the Corinthian church is going to be obedient to finish the work that they started of giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will talk about his boast and saying, there are others who boast that they work on the same terms that we true apostles do. And in context, Paul's saying, we work for free. We give the gospel of grace for free. And there are others who don't boast in that. They boast like we do, but they get money and they get paid for their ministry. So we're working on two different foundations. Probably the best picture of this is in Romans. If you keep your finger in 2 Corinthians, go back two books to Romans 15 with me. Romans 15, just take a look at verse 14 there. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17 now. In Christ Jesus then I have reason to, literally the Greek reads, to boast. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So Paul believes that there is a ground of boasting that is found alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's too uh, humble and it's actually frankly deceitful to say that anything that God does in and through me, uh, I should, I mean, I mean, how do I say this? It's, uh, it's deceptive to say that, oh, well, God doesn't do anything through me. Uh, that there's, there's no work or responsibility that I have to be faithful to God. Rather, Paul views his ministry as a gift from God, as sourced in Jesus Christ, and then therefore worthy of boasting that there is fruit as a result of Paul's ministry. Agreed? 
Paul did some things in faithfulness to the call of Jesus Christ, finds his confidence in the fact that God is working in him and through him, and then he points to it. And he says, that's God at work in my ministry. Now come back to 2 Corinthians with me. So what in 2 Corinthians is his boast? What is his confidence? Now all through 2 Corinthians 1, we haven't been talking so much about Paul's accomplishments, have we? We've been talking about Paul's suffering. We've been talking about the fact that it looks like Paul is at the end of himself. Paul has been brought to the very edge where everything in him has said, I have no hope. Everything in him says, it's only death. Everything in him says, I have no hope in, the, in my ability to carry out the ministry that God has called me to, but for a God who raises the dead. So Paul now is going to move, and we're going to stay in Paul's subjective, in his inner experience. He experienced God to be a God of comfort. Number two, he experienced God to be a God of resurrections. And now here in verse 12, he says, my boast, my confidence... The ground of my boasting is what? Not my external things, but it's the internal thing. It's the testimony of my conscience. Now, our conscience is, is kind of like the umpire. Anybody watch baseball? You know what an umpire is? Safe and out, in, fair ball, foul ball, right? Uh, <clears throat> the, the umpire on the inside of us that says this is approved, this is disapproved. This is right, this is wrong. And Paul, as he talks to the Corinthian church here, and the false apostles are in this church whispering about his, uh, what you're going to see here in a minute, is kind of his duplicity. They're going to accuse him of duplicity. Where he begins is on the inside. On the inside of experienced desperation, but God was comforted. On the inside, I despaired of my own ability, but God raised the dead. And on the inside now, I can speak with authenticity in the fact that my conscience is clear. It is a beautiful thing in the Christian faith to have a clean conscience. Amen? Man, it is a, it is a great thing to say, hey, I have no, nothing against myself. Uh, I am totally clean and clear in my conscience. That's where Paul's going to start. Now look at what he says to explain it. This, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. If you have a Bible, you have a Bible that may be that first word that may be holiness. Anybody have a word that says holiness in their Bible? No, you got, yeah, you got holiness in your Bible? That one there back, to, back there too. The, the word is uh, haplotes in the Greek, which you can write that down and use that when you go to lunch today. Uh, that's incredibly helpful, I know, to talk about. In 2 Corinthians, the word is typically translated as generosity. The idea is that Paul is completely given and single-minded to what he is doing. There's a wholesomeness to Paul. And the second word is this godly sincerity. The word sincerity is made up of two Greek words, uh, heliokrine. Krine means to judge, helio means the sun. It's literally sun-tested. It's as if you hold up Paul's conscience to the light and there's no streaks. It's totally transparent. So Paul is both wholesome-minded, single in purpose, and totally clean and clear in his conscience. And the Greek puts it like this, that he's pure motives and his sincerity come alone from God. So Paul's ministry in his subjective, in his inner experience and his clean conscience testifies that no, my ministry has been sourced with pure motives and single-mindedness. I haven't been duplicitous. 
not by what he goes on to say, earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Earthly wisdom, he'll use the word later on, it's a uh, he'll use uh, the word sarks, which means for the flesh, in a minute. Here it's the adjective. But it's essentially a way of saying, I operate, I'm not operating in my ministry on purely human terms. I don't go about the things that God has called me to according to the things that I see. Rather, I have a different metric of evaluation. I have a different way of seeing my ministry. Because if it's merely earthly wisdom with which Paul goes about his life, how long do you think he would suffer? You think he'd suffer very long? I don't think he would. How soon do you think he would look to himself for resources if he was operating in merely an earthly way? I think he would run out of resources really, really quick. But Paul says, no, I don't operate according to earthly or fleshly or material wisdom. Rather, I operate, and what's interesting is the contrast here, isn't it? He says, not earthly wisdom, and you expect him to say what? What kind of wisdom? Heavenly, spiritual wisdom. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't operate by earthly wisdom. Rather, I operate by the grace of God. See, it's only the grace of God that allows us to minister to one another and through the power of the Spirit with confidence and integrity. Because if we really believe that nothing good lives in us, that is our sinful flesh, like Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 7. If we really believe that the gospel message we have is given to us only because of the grace of God and what Jesus accomplished for me, then I begin to move away of all of this uh, confidence that I have in myself. I move away from my relative obedience over the past week or so. Rather, I move into ministry to and for others out of the motivation of the fact that I have been given something something I did not earn. I have been given a, uh, a clean slate because of something that only Jesus has accomplished for me. You with me? So Paul says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. How did they experience Paul? They experienced Paul at his best. They experience Paul with pure motives, clear-headedness, uh, transparency, integrity. He modeled that in front of them. Now, you're watching Paul begin to hint at the problems, aren't you? You're watching Paul begin to display his own heart and then therefore how the Corinthians ought to respond to him. Look at verse 13. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand. What is he saying? He's saying that there's not a message. You don't need to read between the lines with me. I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. When I write it to you, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm not trying to lead you on or to tell you something that is from a motive that is secret in my heart, but Paul is clean and clear. Paul is earnest in the way that he writes to this church. Commentators look at 2 Corinthians and they say, yes, there are pastoral epistles by Paul, but 2 Corinthians probably gives us one of the most extended treatments of Paul's heart for people in ministry. 
of Paul's heart and desire that God would do something in their life that only God can do, not Paul can do. Supremely so towards you. We're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand. Verse 14, just as you did partially understand us. Doesn't that encourage you? Aren't you glad that the Corinthian church got Paul's letters and was like, we get it, kind of. I, I mean, I think I know what he's saying. I can kind of, I, uh, maybe, we, I, we partially get it, right? That even in our church, even in the Corinthian church's experience, there was a, a, a disconnect. Don't you have that? Where you read God's word and you go, I think I get it. We want God to do things in our church where we're shaped by God's word and growing in grace and living out the obedience in his name through the power of the spirit and how well do we do? We partially understand. We get pieces of it, flashes of the spirit doing things and, and Paul recognizes that. So on one hand, he says, listen, I'm not, my motives are clean. I tried to write you as clearly as I could and you, there was partial understanding. And that's okay. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Do you see where he just took them? He took their relationship to the day of Jesus Christ. What's that? That's judgment day, right? On the day when all the motives will be seen. When all of the words, all of the effort, all of the discipline, all of the ministry will be evaluated, right? That there's coming a day where everything that I have done for the sake of Jesus will be evaluated by the one with eyes like flames of fire. And he takes his own clean conscience, he takes their partial understanding, and he says there's coming a day on the day of Jesus Christ where you will boast of us as we will boast of you. There, between apostle and church, there's this beautiful mutuality. There's a beautiful relationship. Paul in Romans says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. That's what I just said, isn't it? Isn't there a beautiful kind of relationship between the people who share the gospel with us and those who receive the gospel message? I did this probably three months ago. I was... uh, I was in an elder meeting, and we were sitting there talking. I had a friend of mine just come to mind. And my life has been uh, punctuated by men who have had significant impact in my life. And and for various reasons and for various seasons, anybody who's walked with God for, for a while has significant relationships in your life. Who has significant spiritual relationships in their life that they could name right now? Yeah, you, ha- you have those people, don't you? And I was sitting in a meeting and I thought to myself just about, I was thinking, I don't know what I was, maybe I wasn't paying attention. That's bad. Uh, and I was thinking about where I had come in the course of the past 20 years of my Christian life and ministry in general. I had this guy just pop into my head and I thought, man, I haven't talked to him in probably years. So I decided to, uh, to write him. 
And I said, man, I'm sitting in a meeting and we're thinking about big stuff for our church and I just want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you for that season of my life. That was a really difficult and complex season for me and I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. I want to thank you for your steadfast work in my life. I want to thank you just for being faithful to what God was doing and where he had you at that time. And this is how God does it a lot of times. I get an email back minutes later and he says, man, I got that email right in the midst of one of the most difficult ministry seasons I've ever been in. And that's how God does it, right? Isn't that God? God brings people to mind exactly when we need him. Let me, let me pause. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Let me encourage you. This week, if you're walking with Christ right now and you can go back to individuals in your life who have encouraged you, who have challenged you, who had the hard conversation with you, who encouraged you to faith and repentance and godliness, let me encourage you to take, just take 20 minutes, take a note, don't email, take a real paper, a real pen, and you sit down, and I don't care if your hand cramps, because we all use these now, keyboards. You write to them, and you tell them, Thanks for your willingness to share the gospel with me. Because Paul shows us something here that is so incredibly profound in the life of our spiritual ministry to one another. You will step into eternity and you will boast in the presence of Jesus Christ about the person who brought you the gospel message. And the person who brought you the gospel message will boast in the presence of Jesus Christ that they received the gospel message. There will be, just like 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11, a beautiful mutuality to our relationship spiritually to one another. So you take 10 minutes this week and you write them a note and you tell them you had an impact. I'm walking with Christ today and it wouldn't be uh, that way unless you were faithful to do what God has called to you. And you can use, I boast in you. It sounds weird, doesn't matter. You quote this verse and you encourage them with the fact that you are where you are because people took a risk to share Christ with you. Amen? All right, that's your exercise for this week. Go do that. Paul, tells, Paul does this in, in 2 Thessalonians. There's this beautiful spot in 2 Thessalonians 2. I'll just read them. You don't have to turn there. He says this. He, he talks about this. He says, this is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his, at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's entire hope in his future recognition of his ministry is the fact that people received the message that he passed on. People believed it, received it, walked in it. Here's what he says about the church in verse 13, 1 Thess 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which which is at work in you believers. Paul has both in mind. He says, my greatest hope is that people that I share the gospel with would come to believe that this isn't my message, it's the very message of God. And my boast one day will be the churches that I invested in, the churches that held strong to the faith, the churches that believed the truth, the churches that held on to the purity of the gospel. And I will stand in the presence of Christ and I will boast of them. And listen, the church will boast of Paul. 
They will say, he is our apostle. And the apostle says, there is my church. Now, all of this is sourced in the grace of God, right? That's what we saw last week. There's this beautiful relationship where God is at top. Paul is fulfilling the ministry that Christ has called him to. The Corinthian church is fulfilling the responsibility they have to pray for Paul. And there's a mutual relationship for God's glory that many would give him thanks. You with me so far? Verse 15. Because I was sure of this. What's this in context? This, in context, is the relationship, our mutual relationship with one another, that we are together in this gospel ministry and this gospel work. Because I'm sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. In context, what's the second experience of grace? It's getting to see Paul face to face. Guy, not to put you on the spot, has it been an experience of grace hanging out with the Linda Myers after so many years? It has, right? Because these are people who brought you the faith. These are the people who shared the gospel with you. And now this reuniting moment where we get to have a face-to-face and an experience. What is the grace in context? It's the relationships with those we've invested in. It's those we've cared about and prayed for and taught and discipled and encouraged. And we get to see each other face to face. And now, here's where the false apostles decide to attack Paul. In 1 Corinthians 16, you can read this later, it's like 5 through 9. Paul talks about his travel plans. And between 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 1, something happens in Paul's travel plans. Paul has two things happen. One, where he has a painful visit with the Corinthian church, where it seems he confronts one of these false apostles. And then he leaves, and he doesn't come back. And the false apostles say, aha, he's inconsistent. Aha, you can't trust him. He said he was going to come at 3 o'clock on a Thursday, and it's 4.30. Where is he? He probably doesn't even follow the Lord. You laugh. But they will use, these false apostles will use anything in their tool belt to make sure that they sow division between Paul and the people that he's poured his heart into. You feel the temperature rise in your heart? You feel the, wait a minute, there's something wrong about that. Verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Both of these are rhetorical questions, right? Is Paul just saying, well, I'm going to show up, I'm not going to show up. Hey, I'm coming, no, I'm not coming. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Is Paul kind of blown by the Spirit to be unreliable and duplicitous in the things he says? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful. What an interesting place to go. Don't you feel the temptation in that moment to say, I have a great track record. I always do what I say. I am always reliable. I only and always drive 65. I only and always speak the truth in love. I, o- I never take pens from work. I am only and always filled with integrity and reliable, that you can count on me. But that's not what Paul does. 
Paul doesn't root their confidence in his personal integrity. Rather, watch where he takes them. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful. Every good Christian leader has to root the people's, has to root the confidence of the people he ministers to, not in himself, but in God. He has to. He has to. Why? Because every minister, every preacher, every teacher, every person that you get discipled by will inevitably, finally, and ultimately be inconsistent. Amen? They, they will be inconsistent. But this is not about Paul's ego. This is not about Paul's integrity. Paul is about to root their belief in him and the clearness of his testimony, the confidence of his conscience in God himself. Just as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, what Paul does, watch this, he takes his travel plans and he puts them underneath a greater argument. The argument here is from greater to lesser. And Paul doesn't deal down here with his travel plans as if that's the real issue. He's going to root it in a greater issue, which he just invited you into. He says, just as God is what? Faithful. Our word. Now, word about my travel plans? That's not what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the preached word. He's going to talk about the gospel message. He's going to talk about the things that he shared with them. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. Watch this. Paul builds from the character of God to the apostolic cohort, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, and I and then into the preached message about Jesus as the Son of God. You with me? You watching him, watching him build this? God is faithful. We're his apostles. We have preached the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In him it is always yes. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. This is packed. We could spend two weeks just on this verse. I got to spend two minutes on it. We have certainty before God because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Conservatively, Jesus Christ fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies that pointed to him as the coming king. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, the one who is coming to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the fulfillment of uh, Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham that in your seed will all the nations of the world be blessed. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 18 where God says, I am raising up a prophet from among their brothers like you who will have the very words of God in his mouth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of John the Baptist's words who says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who at the end of his life uh, dies, who's risen from the dead and who now promises adoption as sons. He promises and fulfills the forgiveness of sins. 
All of the promises, every single thing that God has promised for you that will last into eternity future is a result of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That in him you have an inheritance, Peter says, that is kept in heaven for you imperishable and undefiled. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Why can we as a church have confidence that our sins are forgiven? Because Jesus paid for them. Jesus died for them. Jesus rose again for our vindication, giving proof that he is the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So that every promise God has made, we look to Christ and go, it's secure. We look to Christ and say, they're true. We look to Christ and say, I can count on him. Now, why does Paul take us here? Think about that. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. How do we respond to God? We respond to God because of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ for us. We don't respond to God as, thank God we did it. Thank God we were faithful. No, it's thank God Jesus died. Thank God Jesus was faithful. Thank God Jesus rose again. Thank God my future is secure because of Jesus. Thank God that he knows my name, that I've received adoption as sons because of Jesus. Thank God. That is the undercurrent of the Christian church. Amen? The grace of God. Thank God that there's a God of grace. God is faithful. The apostolic cohort who gives the preached word about Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in him. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us. Now watch this. Here's the first spot in this section where we see the relationship between Paul and the church. It's God who establishes us with who? Say you like you're in the building. You. You. It's God who establishes us with you. We are together in this. And has anointed us. Anointing has to do with spiritual service. It's typically done to kings and priests. And here in context, Paul says, we were anointed with the spirit of God to be the forerunners, to be the apostles, the one who take the message of God from Jew, uh, from J- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We've been given a commission and a calling and an anointing by God to carry out his ministry. Verse 22, and it was put his seal on us, that there's a seal of owner. If you remember uh, our study of Revelation, remember back in like 97, we did the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, there are seals that happen, and seals have to do with the ownership That we are wholly his. We are recognized and anointed by God that we are his apostolic messengers. We're sealed by God so that all that we do is done according to his name and for his sake. Number three, he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Who's a realtor in here? You a realtor? Craig, raise your hand. Come on, there you go, realtor. Realtors use a term called earnest money. And earnest money puts money, if you ever bought a house, you put down earnest money, which says, I promise to make good on this contract. 
It's a financial term, which means now Paul starts with the faithfulness of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ who gives you the fulfillment and the answer to all the promises of God, and then he seals it in a Trinitarian way by saying that the Spirit of God is the down payment that God not only is faithful in what he accomplished in Jesus Christ, but God will be faithful into the future. That he will never leave, never forsake, every promise will come true. And the down payment is that he's given you of himself in your inner spirit. You with me so far? We're almost done. Here's the danger. Why does Paul do this? There's not one bit of this that Paul looks to his own personal integrity, does he? All that he does as an apostle is appeal to God, the gospel, Jesus, his promises, the down payment of the spirit, the fact that his conscience is clean and he's trusting alone that God will accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish in the life of this church. And the danger in this passage is that the church would leave the apostle. Not that the apostle would leave the church. Do you get that? The danger is that this church who's received confidence in their relationship with God would fall to these false apostles, would fall to these people who have influence in their day and in their time, and would fall from grace. They would fall away from the individuals who've been sealed and anointed and acknowledged that God himself has put his hand on our ministry and constrained us to preach Christ and him crucified. Church, if you question my apostolic credentials because of my travel plans, you are in danger of leaving the very gospel that saved you. So on one hand, there's a danger for those of us that minister to others that we might get into conversations that appeal merely to fleshly ways, merely to earthly wisdom. And you know this, if you walk with Christ, you've shared the gospel with people, or you've prayed for people to come to faith, or you're praying that people might walk out of bondage to sin into the light of Christ and that God might do a work in their heart, you know it is not about you, Right? You feel that pain in your heart that God, that they might not miss an opportunity to know and serve and understand God. And listen, we're all inconsistent, but Paul gives us a model here. If we want to minister to others well, it will be constantly bringing them back to the truth that God is faithful, right? That's our hope. We are, we are, our ambition is so, such that we might point them to the one who can save anyone. We might point them to the one who is in, in whom is total consistency, who is the way, the truth, and the life. But number two, the danger for a passage like this. Here's a bad hermeneutic. You want to know a bad hermeneutic? Here's not how you read 2 Corinthians 1. is to say that Steve is Paul. Right? It's to say that, oh gosh, I got to listen to Steve. I got to make sure I really listen to Steve in my Christian life. And really Steve, what Steve's doing when he preaches is, is really make sure that this is a way I can just make sure that people listen to me and my, I win. 
here's the real way to interpret this. The real way to interpret 2 Corinthians isn't to look at any particular leader. It's to look at any church that divorces itself from the apostolic witness. It's any church that refuses to take seriously the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is. And this happens all the time. People go, oh, I can't believe your church doesn't agree with smoking. Jesus isn't real. I saw you out and you, you know, cussed at a soccer ball. I can't go to your church. You laugh. But humans, sinners, will find any way to discredit the church they can. To, uh, to avoid the church they can. To avoid culpability for their sin. To move from confidence in self to faith, trust, and repentance in Jesus Christ who raises the dead. Don't get surprised. There are churches all over the place that want a more influential ministry than they do a ministry of impact and faithfulness to the word of God. All over the place. And the test for a church, the test for you and I, is to come to the word of God and the apostolic witness. And when it doesn't make sense, is to stay right there. Is to acknowledge there's some partial misunderstanding in me. There's some partial understanding that I haven't come to fullness of understanding this text. But it doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't the son of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't risen from the dead. And listen, encourage you, it doesn't mean that your sins aren't forgiven. It doesn't mean that God is not faithful. It doesn't mean that he will be faithful to you all the way to the end of your life. So do you see how much heart is in this passage? Do you see how much passion is in this for Paul? How nervous and worried he is that this church would leave the apostolic witness, would leave the very hope of the gospel they put their trust in. And for us, our goal as a church is even if it doesn't make sense, is to come back to a God is faithful and to lay hold of the fact. Remember John 6? I'll close here. We can ask Jared and the band to come up. John chapter 6. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and everybody's having a real hard time with it. And in John chapter 6, it says that many of his disciples left because they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? I'm just not that into cannibalism. It doesn't feel right to me. I'm just not into that right now, Jesus. Thank you. And Jesus turns to his disciples, his closest, his 12. And there's disciples who were leaving. They're saying, I'm not signing up for this anymore. You can have my money back. I don't want the membership. I'm not going to be a disciple. I don't want any more. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, are you going to leave too? And here's Peter in all of his misunderstanding and all of his partial understanding about what Jesus is saying and what Jesus has come to do. And he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's ministry. That's the church. Do we understand all the time? No. Are there attacks and efforts made to dissuade us from opening the book and knowing and seeing and glorying the fact that Jesus loves me and Jesus has forgiven my sin? All the time. But that doesn't mean we leave. We stay right there and we come back to the book trusting that God is faithful. He will do what he says. And all of his promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Father, what hope we have because you are faithful to us. What confidence we have because you love us. What kindness you have showed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Would this text be something that resonates in our hearts this week, that we would return again to the source and the words of eternal life. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.